Like I said at the beginning of the evening with the instructions, the instructional part of the evening, I said how happy I was to be back here and um, how precious being able to sit with you is to me. It was really the first time since 1994 that I had taken four weeks in succession and not been with the group. And... And it's, it's really different when I'm outside of the milieu of, of leading classes and retreats. And yet in the middle of my time away, I had the, I had the um, just the happenstance arising of an opportunity to share some meditation instructions with, in a very casual way. And I noticed myself feel this incredible surge of, of joy. And... The surge of joy was not just because I was sharing the teachings, that's, it's joyful in itself, but it was what I was sharing. It was the, it was the uh, to me, the, as I said in the instructions, the, the, the real um, bliss is, um, is just the fact that we are conscious. And it, there's such a tendency, I've noticed, in meditators to meditate in order to arrive at a particular place at a particular time, to arrive at, at a quieter mind or a quieter body or less suffering. And all those things are very, very natural uh, longings. No one, what, what binds us all is our desire to be happy and our desire to be free of suffering. And so we employ all kinds of means uh, skillful means and sometimes not so skillful means to attain that. But especially when it comes to meditation practice, because most everything in our life, as we think of goals, they take time, it's easy because the unfolding of practice does unfold in time, it's easy to miss that the real bliss of the practice is what's actually happening in every moment. Just the fact of being conscious. And so meditation practice can be a process of postponement of being awake and appreciating that state of being awake and the bliss of that state of being awake. And don't get caught up in the notion of bliss as being this exotic state. It's just the... I could I could deconstruct it a little bit, and it would just be the the aliveness, the immediacy, the enoughness, the sufficiency, the completeness of just a moment of being awake. 
of being conscious. In the Hindu tradition, what's often described as a, a state of being conscious is the word, any of you yogis, you've heard the word Satchitananda. Satchitananda. In fact, we used to have up on Dolores Street and between uh, 20th and 19th and 20th or 20th and 21st, we had the, um, I forgot the name of the place, Integral Yoga Institute. And it was led by Swami Satchitananda. And just a little aside about Swami Satchidananda, I think one of the things that made him famous was his advertising. And one of his most famous advertisements was a big poster of him standing in the tree pose, which those of you who know yoga, tree pose is one leg up and you know hands like this. And he was standing in the tree pose on a surfboard in the middle of a surging ocean. And the caption underneath the, the picture was, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Come meditate with Swami Satchidananda. For whatever that's worth. But Satchidananda, it's, if you break up this word, Satchidananda, it's very similar to Satipatthana. And I'll go. I'll get in. I'll move on to Satipatthana in a moment. Satchitananda is Sat means being, being. Chit means being conscious, and Ananda is the word for bliss. So when you put these two words together, being conscious, it is being conscious that reveals the that reveals or expresses itself as the the bliss of being the, the bliss of being as you all of you know i love the advaita vedanta teacher mr gadat in his passage when he says when the mind is kept away from its preoccupations when it's present in other words it becomes quiet and if you don't disturb that quiet and you just stay in it, which is another way of saying when you are being conscious in a continuous way. If you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll see that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your natural state, as your own nature. Once you've tasted that being conscious, once you've tasted that experience, as he says, you'll never be the same person again. That's what it's about. It's about waking up to, uh, to a natural freedom. He says you'll never be the same person again. But then, this is where practice comes in. He says the unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken, grasping and attachment ends, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. So, our practice does evolve. It does. We do evolve toward a deeper understanding of awakening, but awakening is here. Awakening is the beginning of our practice. Being conscious. It is the path of practice itself, and it's the end of the practice. So the practice never reaches beyond you right here. And our mind will easily entrance us into, into looking for results, looking for evidence that we're improving. So that all of this tends to 
easily make us forget that the point is always arrived at in the present moment. Now, if we, if we, on the other hand, if you notice that you've been practicing being conscious and you're still railing at the other drivers or, or you're still impatient and reactive, if you're, if you're constantly in your mind complaining about things and just feeding it, then you may question whether your practice is working. But I have a feeling if you really were passionate about conscious being, about being conscious, that state of being aware, if you were really passionate about it and not postponing it and not just relegating it to Tuesday night or, or your, your daily formal period, but you are on fire with it moment by moment, then it is inevitable that you would, well first you'll see how terrible your mind is. First you'll see how crazy you are. I debated about outing myself tonight, but I think I will. I'm going to out myself in a variety of ways. I, um, I'm outing myself first by letting you know that I had the, the incredible privilege and good fortune due to the generosity of one of my closest friends in the world that I was able to go to Indonesia and spent almost three and a half weeks in, Indo- in Bali. That's where I've been during this time. So I, I'm, sometimes I don't like to share those things because I don't like to engender any kind of I hate you. <laughs> that kind of thing. But I figure I figure everyone here has what we call what we call mudita or sympathetic joy, that capacity to join in my good fortune. So I'm I'm trusting you. I'm tr- I'm trusting you. But the fact that I was able to uh, go to Bali is a wonderful thing. But what I discovered in Bali is even more wonderful. What I discovered was a culture that is, um, that is uh, literally the engine of that culture is goodness and blessings and offerings and consciousness of what one is doing and the, and the uh, intention for, for what one is doing. So a constant practice is going on of being of offering blessings to everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you are, and of course offer, making offerings for some of the, in superstitious ways about a, a fortunate rebirth or whatever it might be. There are all kinds of offerings. But the effect of this, this consciousness of what people are doing, saying, thinking, and how they're doing it, because it's so deeply embedded in the culture, I found it interesting, and I may have made all kinds of projections on this culture, I have to admit, because I didn't obviously meet everyone. But it seems to be a culture, at least it was for me, that is void of ill will. That was void of impatience. Void of irritation. And how do I know that? It's because often, as I would walk through the streets of the of the towns and be assaulted by taxi drivers, I would notice how irritated I got. I would notice how impatient. I would notice all the different reactivity in my mind. And I realized that we take this for granted as our, as our common states, just being frustrated, irritated, uh, incredulous, 
blaming, demanding, expecting a kind of shroud of privilege that we don't even realize. And it was so obvious in the face of the people who were sharing intense traffic, sharing two lanes that aren't even two full lanes, and running into each other and having to stop every second and not feeling any kind of, I can't believe you did that, which is so endemic in, in our culture. That, that the culture, we are the culture of irritation. And I didn't know that to that extent until I entered into this state of state of being conscious in a in a culture that mirrors back, uh, you know, that's so different, and it, it allowed me to see the edges of of um, where where love has not found itself, where that that being that being and con- being consciously. Uh, awake and aware and all the qualities that flow from that haven't quite fully cooked or developed. So it was, uh, it was very instructive. But it, an interesting thing happened in the face of seeing so much, uh, so much of my own reactivity is that I got happier and happier the more I saw it. And I saw that there is a joy in seeing clearly what our minds are doing, even when it's bad news. Even when it's about confessing to ourselves our delusions, that there's something about meeting that with this state of being conscious that is our natural state that, that allowed me to see that this is simply conditioning, rolling on, playing out, not personal really even. And it started to give me the sense of how many, how much rolls through my consciousness or rolls through your consciousness that's just systemic to the, cause, to the conditions in which we live that are so selfless. Not me, not mine. And yet it's, you know, in my individuality, I have to, have to deal with that. Each of us does. It just helps to have the commitment and the passion to be conscious. And it doesn't mean that we're always in a state of wonder and rapture, but there's something even delicious about seeing uh, and feeling the pain of our condition as well. So before I came in tonight, I stumbled on this little passage in my folders from Goethe, which I thought was very, um, very much the feeling I was having about um, just appreciating the, the profound value of just being conscious. He said, the little that is... Wait. The little that is escapes the eye, which looks ahead to see how much will remain. The little that is escapes the eye, which looks ahead to see how much will, will remain. It looks ahead to see how much will remain. It looks ahead to see how much I will get. Our mind is so fixated on what's next that, um, that we can so easily miss the bliss of conscious being. Satchitananda or Satipatthana. 
Satipatthana is the word, just to back up a little bit, Satipatthana is the word for the, the sutra that is central to the sutra that the Buddha offered 2,700 years ago. Uh, the sutra on cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness. It's called the Satipatthana Sutra. And in that sutra, the word, the central word is sati, which is the cultivation, or the I, I like to think of it as the reclamation, the recovery, the remembering of this, this natural state of being conscious. So sati means being aware. And whenever you read about it throughout all the sutras of the Buddha, you, you mostly read about it as not something that you do, even though it has an active quality, but as a, as a state of being, as, a, as your natural state. And some would say satipatthana would be most accurately translated as uh, being, being lucidly aware, having lucid awareness. So how far do you have to travel to have lucid awareness? Anybody willing to say? Can anybody, does anybody not have lucid awareness right now? It's so easy to overlook this vital point. And what keeps us from, from marrying, falling in love with and marrying this most precious element this dharma datu, this element of the dharma in us, what prevents us from, from treating it with the, the value that it really has as the source of, of all well-being and happiness? What makes us overlook that? Anybody willing to say? One, we don't recognize it. As... You know from, I've shared it so many times here, the Tibetan teaching on the four faults. We tend to fall into four states of delusion. The four faults are this capacity of being conscious, being mindful, is, uh, and how, how rich and deep this is. Uh, the Tibetans say it's too close. We usually think that if something's worthwhile, you have to go searching for it. And the second part is it's too vast. The nature of our mind, it's not so easy to encapsulate in our ordinary way of thinking. It's so vast and inclusive and filled with all the qualities, of the miraculous qualities of our humanness. So it's too close, it's too vast. The third one is too wondrous. We can't accommodate it. How, how wondrous the, the nature of our own minds. And we don't even, and we don't have to look anywhere else. And then the last one is, uh, the last fault is it's too easy. Can't believe that all we have to do is stay where we are. Moment by moment. We don't have to exhaust ourselves 
That's why that in the wonderful words of Nosho Ken Rinpoche, another Tibetan teacher, he says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. It's beaten helpless. Karma and neurotic thought is the mind that's constantly looking for, for peace elsewhere, looking for it in ideas about ourselves, in our goals, in our expectations, in our, in our um, memories. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, which is, as he says, like a relentless fury in the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Samsara is this endless wandering, endlessly searching for a future that never arrives. Because time is always now. So we, the good news about practice is it just keeps, if you really take it to heart and you're passionate about it, you, you begin awake, you awaken. Here, now, tonight. We don't postpone. And then we, we suddenly awaken and then we get used to it. And we do it until our mind no longer strays away from ourselves. We no longer, no longer um, fall into any mistaken ident- idea of where happiness is to be found. We know that we know with confidence that nothing can make us happier than we are fundamentally. We know that all search for it elsewhere is actually misery. And it just leads more misery. And as many, every teacher says, the only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being conscious. Satipatthana. Being aware. So then, so I was, as I was saying, I had the good fortune while I was away to, with the people I was with, believe it or not, my friend who, who, uh, generously made it possible for me to go to this, also made it generously possible for 20 adults and 10 children to also travel all this way. So at one point in this, as I was trying to be nobody doing nothing, uh, I was kind of pulled into sharing a little meditation instruction, and I just noticed myself just appreciating being able to speak about being conscious. This was a crowd of people that do a lot, like to do a lot of shopping and like to a lot of entertainment, and you know they have a certain kind of worldly happiness. But they didn't know much about working with their minds. Didn't know much about true happiness, the happiness of being conscious. And so it was great to have that reminder, and then great to come back and tell you about it, confess my delusions, and and uh, and just hope that that somehow that we make as our practice not only just staying conscious but also setting intentions every day to do those things that keep us conscious and perhaps we can evolve as part of the inevitable unfolding of practice not just to, to, uh, to be conscious but to be kind, to be patient I, I, it, it made me be determined to, before I get into my car, decide I'm going to practice patience. 
Every time. That's my commitment. Anybody want to join me? How many people would like to join me? 90 days, every day. Patience as soon as you sit behind the wheel. Patience. Gentleness. Thank you, David. Any other sinners? <laughs> Yay. Can any of you relate to what I'm saying tonight? Yes. I was just shocked by, by uh, the difference in what, I've, what we learned to take for granted, this, this kind of culture of irritation. And it doesn't have to be that way. And, and it really does start with each of us. Remember that, that same teacher who I quoted about the, 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 uh, the natural state of conscious being, the Sri Nisargadatta, he says, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will be the way it is. If we want a peaceful world, a kind world, a patient world, we have to have peaceful, kind, and patient people. It's not something anybody can impose on the world. It has to start in each of our hearts and minds. So that's my commitment to, to uh, stay conscious and to practice gentleness, kindness, patience, and see if I can be more Balinese. <laughs> Maybe we can become the Balinese Sangha. We're known, I've been told we're known as a happy sangha. But we should be a, we should be a gentle sangha, a patient sangha. And somehow we should have the thoughts, the, 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 the idea, the, um, some kind of posters or something reminding us, these are the qualities I want to stay awake to in my daily life. It does require that we slow down a little. As Dana Falls puts it in her poem called Walk Slowly. It only takes a reminder to breathe. A moment to be still. And just like that, something inside me settles. Softens. Makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper... And I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish, finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget to catch myself charging forward without ever knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe, to be, and walk slowly into the mystery. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments.
since we're back on home, I'm back on home turf. I think I'll end with a Northwest Native American tradition poem called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. Listen, the forest breathes, it whispers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to ravens, no two branches the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, then you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are, and you must let it find you. May all beings find their own nature. May all beings be free. May all beings grow in love. Thank you for listening and being here and thanks for your generosity and I will um, look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. Just a, a brief a brief announcement of my next day long at Spirit Rock is on the 24th of August for anybody uh, introduction to insight meditation day long so if anybody would like to come or you'd like to send people come one come all it's a wonderful thing to spend a day at the rock. See you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.